Welcome to Pop Parenting, Season 2, where therapist and author Avram Nadigal and myself, Ellie Bass, drink a lot of coffee and discuss family dynamics, relationships, parenting, and more each week using 2000s movies to illustrate complex situations and examples. By the way, Pop Parenting is now rated in the top 20 Jewish podcasts to watch in 2021, all thanks to you. So thank you for all of your support, feedback, and movie suggestions. Please keep them coming. And don't forget to subscribe. We're available on all podcast platforms. Okay, here we go. Welcome back, everyone. The Family Stone. Uh, Ellie. Before we begin, I have to I have to read something. Okay. okay? Before we, we we do the on one foot. All right. <clears throat> so as you know, because we spoke uh, uh, via a messenger text last night, um, I I did not like this family, <laughs> and I had a really hard time with this film. Although there are themes that are good for this podcast, I right. really didn't like this family in this film. But I couldn't put into words my distaste. Okay. So I, so I, I went searching online because that's what you do when you yeah. can't, you go online, you, you, you know, and I found someone who, who in a much more eloquent way represented my thoughts about this film. So let me, let me read to you an introduction of a review of this film. This okay. is how the review starts. Ah, the family stone. One of the most deliciously hateable movies we love to vent about the allegedly heartwarming quote-unquote dramedy is in fact an unintentional lesson of horrific screenwriting and character building. The Stones are framed as freewheeling, liberal, and progressive when they are in fact emotionally abusive, judgmental, and hypocritical. Meanwhile, our supposed antagonist Meredith is meant to be viewed as uptight, conservative, no fun, and mean when she's actually a shy, insecure, normal woman who is a victim of the Stone's cruelty and passive aggression, later aggressive aggression. Let's air our grievances with this unappetizing crap casserole of a movie and share insights old and new. So with that, because that's pretty much how I I, I felt watching this film. Um, With that, uh, I hand it over to you, Ellie, to introduce our listeners to the family stone <laughs> none of whom are going to want to watch it at this point <laughs> that's, well, well, the purpose of this I'll, podcast is not to have people watch films <laughs> uh although sarah jessica parker was nominated for a golden globe for her role for Interesting. Meredith. yeah hmm. yeah um which is it is really interesting because i actually loved her character it, i also found the family really deeply uncomfortable to watch the dynamics in that family. And I really felt bad for her character. I felt like she was the most genuine out of all of them. So it was really interesting. And if you don't think that I don't know people like this, <laughs> I can tell you for a fact, this is this is an archetype of a certain type of person who right. feel that their virtue and the way they see the world isn't an opinion. It is right and if you have a and if you have a different one it's because you are a mean mean correct person and should not be on the planet earth i know people like this no no one else does just say right <laughs> this isn't showing up anywhere else in the world other than in this movie just saying right um she says deeply sarcastically okay So the Family Stone is a project um, 
actually Diane Keaton was the first actor to sign on. So she was the first one that um, that they actually got to be part of the movie and how they got all of these other amazing actors to be part of it also, um, which is really interesting. So The Family Stone is basically a movie about, um, uh, you know, it's kind of a play on words where it says The Family Stone. Um, it's really about um, this one family and their sort of struggle. Sorry. sounds um it's really about this one family and their intense struggle to figure out um to figure out their relationships diane keaton plays the mother sybil who is dealing with um she is a cancer survivor and um has recently found out that she has um uh, a cancer recurrence of something apparently that's more aggressive um, her husband uh, Kelly is a uh, is a professor. Um, now, Ellie, my understanding, if I maybe I missed this, but um, we don't we don't know what's happening with Sybil, uh, Diane Keaton's character. Uh, all we know is that at different points in the beginning of the film, she is in a melancholic way, looking out windows, staring at Christmas trees. You, you don't really know why she's so distracted until mid, mid, late in the film, right? She doesn't talk about that in the beginning of the film, does she? You, it's, I guess it's about a third of the way through, you kind of find out what's going on. Although... I mean, we know for a fact that the, and, and I'll come back to this with my notes, it is a family secret though. I think the husband knows, the husband definitely knows because yeah, they talk about and it then bed, we but see, the kids don't. And then we see that the daughter, the eldest daughter knows because she goes and lies beside her mother at one point and then her mother turns around and says, who else knows? So but this we, is, again, this is after Meredith comes, this is later on in the film. Yeah, but not that much later. You kind of see each of the kids finding out. The father tells Ben when Ben mm -hmm. comes home, the eldest son. And so they're all sort of progressively finding out this information. Um, but it's it's kind of like not well communicated in the film, I find. It's sort of like hinted around for some re weird reason. Um, well, I, I think there's a reason. Okay. We'll get back so to that, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so basically this film takes place around um, uh, Christmas, everybody coming home for Christmas. Um, so Diane and Kelly, uh, sorry, Sybil and Kelly are the parents. Um, and the kids in this family are Ben, played by Luke Wilson, who is the eldest son, who's like a bit of a drifter, smokes a lot of pot, clearly smart, but kind of has his own feel about things. So Ellie, is Ben the eldest or is it Everett? Uh, no, I think Ben is the eldest. Oh, I, I missed that. Okay, yeah. thank you. Um, Dermot Mulroney is the um, next, is the son, uh, next son underneath Ben. Um, his name's Everett and he's more kind of like conservative. He's like, oh, I, I don't, can't remember what he does, kind of like a Wall Street sort of guy. And he's the one that's dating Meredith who is a very sort of, you know, well put together, accomplished uh, woman who is socially insecure and awkward, um, but very kind of like, likes things organized. So and, Ever and Everett is the way. eldest. Oh, he is. Okay. They say at yeah. one point that Ben is, but okay, maybe they didn't 
communicate that clearly. Um, okay, and then there's the next son is Thad, who is um, who is uh, deaf and in a relationship with his husband, I think, or boyfriend, um, Patrick. Mm-hmm. And then there's the eldest daughter, which is Susanna, who has who's married with one kid and pregnant with another one on the way. And then there's the youngest daughter, played by Rachel McAdams, whose name is Amy, um, who is not in a relationship. They kind of portray her like she gets out of her crappy car coming from New York with her NPR tote bag um, and is clearly just this kind of like you know, liberal, young, progressive girl um, who has very strong opinions about everybody. Wearing a prototypical Dinosaur Jr. Uh, right. t-shirt that anybody who would listen to NPR would, would would be a fan of Dinosaur Jr., I would think. Right. Yeah, I would think so, too. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the motley cast. Everybody comes home for Christmas. Everett is bringing his daughter, his girlfriend, Meredith, home for the first time to meet everybody. Um, they're all very, um, she's very uh, scared to meet them all because they're sort of portrayed as this freewheeling kind of liberal family and she's a little bit more um, buttoned up and a bit more insecure. Um, and she's already sort of convinced that they're not going to like her. She just doesn't do well in those types of social situations. So she's feeling very nervous. Um, they all, uh, apparently they had met Amy, the youngest daughter, for a dinner in New York City. And Amy had been quite dismissive of her, and Meredith, in her nervousness, had talked a lot. And they just basically didn't hit it off. So she's already coming into the family with that sort of disastrous meal under their belt. Um, And a tick. Yeah, and that she, when she gets nervous, she sort of clears her throat. It's something that she does, and Amy latches onto that. Basically, you know, before Meredith even arrives, tells everybody in the house how terrible she is, um, including the mother. Um, uh, let's see. So they all get together for Christmas. You know, there is a series of embarrassing episodes where Meredith then eventually decides that she's not going to stay in the house. She's going to go stay at the inn nearby where Thad and his husband Patrick are staying. Um, uh, So she moves into the inn. She calls her sister Julie to come and stay with her to um, kind of for moral support. And then things get like super odd. So like... (laughs) Everett sees Julie and is clearly attracted to her. Ben sees Meredith and is clearly attracted to her. Um, There's this terrible sort of Christmas dinner where um, there's a conversation about Thad and Patrick adopting a child. Um, Meredith asks not inappropriate questions, but just with really insecure language and clearly offends everybody at the table. Um, She tries to leave. Um, She crashes Everett's car, trying to drive away to get away from what's going on. Ben comes out of the house and sort of rescues her and takes her to a local bar where they get drunk and she kind of loosens up and, um, but gets so drunk that she sort of blacks out and wakes up in Ben's bed the next morning. 
um, Everett and Julie spend the night walking around town, talking, having deep conversations and looking for Julie, uh, looking for Meredith and Ben. Um, and they clearly are sort of forming some kind of relationship, but Everett tries to pursue it. And Julie says like, I'm sorry, I can't do that. You're, you know, dating and supposedly engaged to my sister uh, or going to be engaged. Um, and then, as we know, the family secret around Sybil's cancer is sort of looming in the background of all of this, and each of the kids is sort of finding out in their own time that this is going on. And the whole point of Everett coming home in the very beginning and why it's called the Family Stone, other than the last the fact that their last name is Stone, is that he wants to give Meredith Sybil's grandmother's ring engagement ring to ask her to marry him and Sybil says no because she doesn't like Meredith um so I think that's pretty much the on one foot you know as we get to the end of the film you know spoiler alert basically we kind of see the next year the next Christmas how things wrap up so now Meredith and Ben are a couple Julie and Everett are a couple um, Amy is dating the paramedic that she um, liked, but was like, like would never admit that she liked in town. Sybil has passed away. Um, Susanna is there with their new baby, as are Thad and Patrick are there with their new baby. Um, and everybody sort of recognizes as they put the decorations on the tree that Sybil isn't there with them. And that's basically the end of the film. Okay, I think that was it. <laughs> I had to create, you know, I haven't done a family diagram for the past few films, but this one I did because lots of characters and moving pieces and it was hard to keep track of, uh, of everything. You know, Ellie, it's funny, eh? Um, you know, there's something about, um, I don't know if it's liberal media and film where there's a certain narrative that gets, um, uh, promulgated like for example um i don't i don't know how often you go to our national broadcaster the, the cbc but mm -hmm. if you look at their front page there's a certain type of story a certain arc mm -hmm. and there isn't other arcs but there's mm -hmm. a certain type of arc and it's always kind of like an alternative countercultural postmodern take on relationships mm -hmm. always you and and i you know I wonder, because a film like this, you know, of course, we don't go to films to have the lives that we live retold to us because we're living that life. So why the hell would I go watch a film about a family that's like my family? Right. You're not going to go right. to a movie to watch people watch TV. <laughs> right. But I, I so I understand that, you know, how each brother ends up with the other woman and it all works out great. They're at Christmas together. Mm -hmm. I, I get that. I get that it's fantastical and it's crazy and ha ha ha. And, you know, um, but I, I think that um, I think there's a deeper thing there. And I think that there is a um, what would you call it, Ellie, uh, a certain type of um, cultural education. Mm -hmm. I see it from, from certain media and definitely in Hollywood, there, there is um, uh, almost this sense of we are going to teach, we are going to teach you minions, the little people, about um, what relationships are really about. Like this is what this, this is what it's really about here. Um, oh, yeah. And this is what family should look like. And this is what the love should look like. And this is what 
looks, you know, education should look like. There's a, you know, there's definitely opinions about those things um, across the spectrum of, you know, political and religious leanings. So, and yes, each side believes that they are, as you put about, you know, one of your friends or knowing people who believe that they are in the right and everyone else is in the wrong and everyone else just needs to be re-educated. <laughs> right, right. So um, to speak. I, I was, you know, I was thinking about whether to share, I'll share this now though, uh, just because I'm thinking, you know, thinking about people who might listen to this podcast, parents, um, and, you know, a question parents have, I have this as a parent, you know, my kids are on their computers, especially during COVID, but they're on there and they do, we don't, we don't monitor everything. It would be too exhausting to even mm -hmm. try. I mean, when we were kids, it was easier. Our parents would come into the living room and if we were watching something that wasn't Sesame Street, you know, I, I'd get in trouble. So I, I would watch Sesame Street, but right. when your kids are on their computer on YouTube. I mean, there, it, it is almost impossible to to micromanage all that kind of stuff. It's not impossible if you if that's your job, if you sit there next to your kid doing this. Um, and yes, you can install things and this, but then you know people go to the library, so it, it's 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 very taxing. But it's not impossible. I just wanted to share this quick little story um, uh, in terms of you know we talk Ellie a lot about on this podcast and in workshops that you and I have done about how does one you know, conduct one's life by one's principles and act according to one's principles. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to write down your principles in a journal. It's hard, but it's easy. I mean, it's, it's hard, the process of distilling down what does Ellie stand for? What does Avram stand for? It's, right. it's tricky, but it's, it's, it's doable and it's possible. Mm -hmm. Living according to that, and putting some skin in the game is a whole different story. Right. So I was uh, across the street from me in Chamonix Laval. I was having my bar mitzvah lessons by these two guys. I, I didn't know who they were. I just, there was two guys. They were brothers. They were, in retrospect, now I realize they were very religious, but they were brothers. And um, nice guys. They sold watches out of their basement and they sold bar mitzvah lessons. And so I, we went to these guys. And I heard five, six years later that one of their kids was getting up to all sorts of shenanigans. Uh, and Chamonix Laval was not a religious neighborhood. So they made a decision for money to live in this area, like a lot of parents do. But when they saw that their child, I think their child wasn't becoming religious. When they saw that, that this community could not sustain their lifestyle, they packed up their entire business, which was very, very successful. And they packed it all up. And they, my understanding is they moved to an area of Montreal where there was more of an orthodox community because, you know, now I don't know what kind of sacrifices these two brothers had to make to do that, but I would imagine it was substantial to close up a, a, a successful business right. um, to do that. I don't know. I don't know what it takes for people to, to do that type of thing. Um, I'd like to think that both Elise and I have done similar-ish things in some ways. And then we've also, I, I know I have violated my principles in other ways. And this is really, really hard with the parenting. And I, I think in workshops, whenever I hear someone talking about this, I always get a sense that it's talked about um, uh, without understanding the real consequences of, of making decisions that's going to hit you in the pocketbook, or that's going to make you not popular with a PTA committee, or that's going to, you know, um, that you won't be, maybe you, 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 you know, uh, you take a stand on something and in your church or your synagogue, um, you will be ostracized for that opinion. I know this is happening in our community, for example, mm -hmm. around COVID. I, I know this is a fact. Right. Um, so I just wanted to, you know, I guess share that little vignette because it is possible, but the consequences are 
are uh, profound. And so when watching these films with these messages, um, I, I think that would be an interesting discussion. I don't think there's any clear answer, but how do we as parents it, it, you know, live with pop culture? It, for those of us who aren't going to live like the old order Amish or like the Munkach Hasidim, how do we as parents work with culture, have conversations um, and, and go along? I think it's an important conversation to keep having because sometimes I feel the tidal wave is too strong um, and I, I get lost in it and I'm not so sure where I stand uh, on it. By the way, just a postscript, funny little uh, tidbit here. Three years ago, I'm standing in Metro Ellie. We live in Toronto. There's a, a, a well-known grocery store called Metro at Lawrence and Bathurst. And in front of me is a Hasidic guy. Okay. So he's got the long curly cupeus and stuff. And he's standing in front of me. And I always like talking to Hasidim. So I, I asked him, uh, I, made, I made a comment. He had a magazine and he said, hello to me. What's your name? My name is Avram. And he goes, oh, my name's Avram too. Oh, very nice. He's like, where are you from? I'm like, oh, I'm not from Toronto. I'm from, you know, Montreal. He goes, oh, where in Montreal? I'm like, well, <laughs> it's a big city, a, a, a little place called Shamadi. I'm from Shamadi. I'm looking. Now, this guy's got this guy's got long payas, wow. okay, and he's a Bubov Rechassid. He, he's a he's one. Of, he told me he's a Bubov. So I said to him, "You grew up in Sh I go, you, don't, you don't look like you grew up in Shamadi." He goes, "Yeah, well, we were there for work and then we left because uh, it wasn't working out for us." I'm like, "Where?" He's like, "Du Calvet." I'm like, "I." I lived on, I'm like, one sec, were you, were you the bar mitzvah guys? He's like, yes. Get I'm like, I'm like I, you gave me, he didn't know my name. So he said it was probably his brother. Would you believe it? Three years ago, I bumped into that family that, that left. Uh, sure. Anyways. Okay. So and his name's Avram. And, from the and his name street. is Avram. That's pretty wild. Yeah. Okay. Sliding doors. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I look, I think it's so important what you're saying. And, and for me, one of the things that I've tried to do as best I can as a parent is to just simply decide at, at the base level of things, what are the, um, what are the deal breakers, hmm. right? If I can at least say what the deal breakers are, then I can like, I know there's at least certain things that lines that won't be crossed because it is, it's exhausting in every moment to have to decide, am I okay with this? Am I not okay with this? Can they watch this show? Can they not watch this show? Like, you know, those kinds of things. So I've tried to at least establish where are my deal breakers? And then, um, and then I at least can move from there because it is really hard to always figure out exactly what you feel about every single question that's gonna come up. So yeah, okay, so where okay. should we start? What's, so on I... the, what's on the map? Yeah, so um, I thought uh, what was most interesting to me is to have a discussion ab about um, something that comes up clinically. It's one of the most challenging things to work with clinically, and I'm sure it's also, by extension, challenging to work with um, in, uh, in a non-clinical way, which is when, Ellie, you ever get this thing, you're in a relationship or it's in your family, something is going on, there, there's a problem, it's focused in one way, but it doesn't feel like that's what the problem is, but everybody's doubled down on that thing and it's all confusing and it doesn't make sense. I, I work with families like this. They'll come in, they'll, they'll present a problem, okay? So I'm just gonna make this up. They come yeah. in and they say that um, their 14-year-old girl um, is a big problem. For what, it doesn't make a difference what the reason is. And then I meet her and it's like, sweet kid, nice kid, 
I'm just not quite getting <laughs> what's going on here. Right. And, and it doesn't happen all the time, but it happens, I would say, you know, every fifth, sixth referral I get. And I have to be very patient with the process because the problem hasn't revealed itself yet. It's something I've grown to um, uh, become patient with and aware. When I first started therapy, it was always confounding to me, like, what the hell is going on? But now I, I've come to appreciate that whatever is going on, it just hasn't been revealed yet. Okay. And I think that um, to, I think that it would be interesting, I think, to uh, discuss what is the hostility from Sybil towards Meredith? How do we understand that hostility? And I don't think it's, uh, I, I think the film does a good job um, portraying that because I'm sure, Ellie, you know people who, friends of yours or family or whatever, where, so, where a child wants to marry someone and the parents just hate the partner choice that their child is picking. They don't even know this, but they, they just, there's something about that person they bring into the house that conjures up this reactivity. And as Carl Jung said, uh, once said, and I, I think this is true, if you ever want to know what the shadowy part of yourself is, whenever you're at a wedding and you're introduced to eight people, the one that you feel disgusted by, right, has something to do with you that you have repressed or forgotten about a long time ago. Right. Okay. So an example is if you're at a wedding, so Young would say, if you're at a wedding and you meet someone and they're like, you know, they're fancy watch and nice jewelry or whatever, and they're very showy and you're like, oh, that, oh I just hated him. And, you know, your spouse turns to you and go, you know, they didn't even say anything to you. <laughs> right. You didn't even talk to them. Oh, I hate them. Young would say there is a part of you that is cut off from your own desire for wealth or prestige or whatever the case may be. So. Um, I yeah. think that this could be, uh, well, I found this an interesting topic. So how about that? How do we understand the hostility between mom, Sybil, and her future daughter-in-law, Meredith? What do you think? I think it's great. I thought it was so interesting. I mean, to me, there was kind of an aside to that also, which was not just whatever Sybil had going on with Meredith, but also like the fact that Sybil and Amy kind of had created this team together, you know, like the we hate Meredith team and kind of really supported each other in that weird collusion, you know, that we're going to get along fine because we're both going to hate Meredith and the glee that they would get, you know, those looks and giggles and like kind of funny ways that they had of enjoying that mutual hatred. Um, so I, I think that, to me also sort of adds pepper to the salt, you know, in terms of not only was she, you know, somehow triggered, but she was deeply supported in that um, by her daughter also being triggered, which is really interesting. It was really wild to watch that. So how do, how do you approach it? I, you know, it's interesting, Ellie, I did not have that as one of my notes, but that actually is an interesting arc to this film. Um, I'm not touching on this in this uh, discussion uh, for me, um, but that would be a great discussion about triangles. We've talked about triangles before. That, that is a classic triangle what you're mm -hmm. describing, and uh, that's a good catch. I, I missed that. Um, so, okay. So I think here's a, a common way of looking at relationship problems is to get caught up in the content. So for example, what's the content? Well, Sybil doesn't like Meredith because she's cold 
and maybe she's rich. She's not hippy dippy like this family. She's um, nervous, ambitious, right? That's the content stuff. And I think that's whenever you hear people talk about relationship challenges, that's how we talk about them. We get caught up in the content. And as a therapist, I can tell you that whenever I'm working with a couple and they get caught up in the content, even if they're right, this isn't a matter of being wrong or right. Even if they're right, that relationship is going nowhere. Yep. It's going nowhere. You can spend years in therapy. And when I say years, I mean decades in therapy with your psychoanalyst talking about the content of your mother who was cold and not make any progress in that relationship or any other relationship. So, so can you it, give an example of what content sounds like as opposed to something else? Yeah. So for example, so one way of looking at this, when you, so if, if uh, we were to, I am asking the question, what is going on between Sybil and Meredith? Well, one person could say, well, get up on the content. The content would be, well, of course, Sybil doesn't like her. Look at her. Her hair is all tight. Right. And she's snobby and she's um, awkward, awkward right. and, 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 but more than that, though, I think people would say, say like, oh, but also ambitious right. and, uh, and, um, oh, what's that expression, Ellie, uh, when you're into things? Um, oh, materialistic. Materialistic, right. exactly. Right. Which, which would run counter to the values of the stones, mm. right? Except, and this is where uh, they say it in therapy, you know, good therapy or a therapist who, who refines themselves and, and becomes less green, you become a little bit more like Sherlock Holmes. You're, you're looking for clues to suggest something else. So one of the clues here is that mom has a problem. Her eldest son is like that too. You see, the problem here is Everett's pretty ambitious and he also has a, you know, his hair is all slicked back and he's got some fancy job. And so he might have, he, he might be rejecting the family stones values here. So right. the content isn't going to help us understand what's happening here, right. although it's, it's part of it, but I don't think it's the most important part. That's so the, I, so, by the way, I don't know if you heard, that's what the father says to the mother, to uh, Kelly says to Sybil in the film, where she's like, how could he possibly like her? And, and Kelly says to her, you know, that's not what's most worrisome to me. It's the fact that you know, maybe he himself doesn't know himself, that Everett right. himself has no idea who he is. And I just thought that was, a that was such a, like you would say, like a good catch. Well, yes, um, except I remember that line. And that is prototypical of a family moving the focus of content from one person to another. This mm -hmm. is something that, uh, that Dr. Bowen used to talk about um, that was so uh, confounding to people who work in addictions. You spend all your time getting someone to stop drinking, and they do after four years of work, mm -hmm. and then they start smoking marijuana. So <laughs> this, is, this is the same thing here. You have mother who's overly focused on uh, Meredith. And what does dad do? He just does the opposite. Actually, maybe it's our son. That's still a content mm. piece. So all I'm saying here is that now you have two people who are doubling down on what is the character part of the problem here? I, I don't think that is the problem in this family. And we're, we're, I, I, I have some quotes I want to share. I'm kind of excited about this because I think this is so, so important to not get caught up in the content of relationship problems. Mm. So, so what's a different way of understanding what's happening in this family. So the first thing, I'm going to throw out an idea here, Ellie, let's just leave it there as a possibility. So perhaps this has nothing to do with Meredith, and it has everything to do 
with how this family operates and has been operating for a long, long time. Okay, so that's just one idea that perhaps okay. this is a family problem and not a Meredith problem or an Everett problem. Okay, uh, do you remember in Saving Private Ryan, um, they have a mission, they're trying to find Private Ryan. Do you, do you ever see the film Saving Private Ryan? Oh, you never saw it. Okay. No. <laughs> Anyways, the point is that they're on a mission and it's a really, it's a really, um, um, they think the soldiers think it's a weird mission and they have an expression. I never heard this expression before called FUBAR. Have you ever heard the expression FUBAR? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So they have a swear word, but I yeah. found a different way of saying it. So I'm not going to say the swear word. Right. So one way of understanding FUBAR is a mission or something that is fouled up beyond all recognition, recovery, reason, repair. Right. So it's a situation where this thing is a total, total Disaster, mess. Right. Okay. I think Meredith walked into a FUBAR. Right. I think Meredith walked into a FUBAR and the FUBAR pre-existed Meredith's introduction. And if you think of our families, we all have some version of FUBAR in our families. Dr. Bowen called it chronic anxiety, all the issues that get passed down from generation to generation. So I think Meredith walked into this. The problem is nobody knows that this is exists. Otherwise, Everett would have warned her, although he kind of does. I think he does kind of prep her a little bit for his family, right? They're looking at you at the window. They're there. He's sort of like preparing her for, uh, for this mm -hmm. family. So he's no fool. He has a sense of how anxious this family is. Mm -hmm. Now, before we get into that, we have to talk about a term here called displacement. Have you ever heard of that concept, mm -mm. displacement? So I'm not an analyst, I'm not a psychoanalyst, but uh, this comes from the world of psychoanalysis, defense mechanisms, how we defend against uncomfortable feelings. So displacement um, as a concept, it, it's the transfer of feelings um, or a behavior from the originating source to a less threatening person or thing. So it works oh, like- okay, I, I do know what you're talking about. So this is like, if you're really anxious about something that's going on in your life, in a deeper way, you'll suddenly be very anxious about something like that isn't so meaningful, right? Like you're you're super worried about like somebody dying, but you're hyper, hyper focused on making sure that your hair looks perfect every day. Exactly, exactly, okay. exactly. And it's a way to defend yourself against the more powerful feeling. And it, it allows you to get on with your life, except it keeps the problem there and gridlocked. Mm -hmm. So an example would be, you see this with kids all the time. I see this with my kids. Let's say I get angry with one of my kids and I take away their computer. They're furious with me, but they can't get angry with me because they're scared of me. So they'll hit their brother. Mm -hmm. That's displacement. That's an example of displacement. So now that we understand about displacement, I want to read to you a quote that I really think captures the essence of what's happening with this family. And this comes from Rabbi Ed Friedman. Uh, we've, I've talked about him before. Rabbi Ed Friedman, um, the late Rabbi Ed Friedman, was a very uh, well-known family therapist. He was a consultant to a lot of organizations, um, and uh, he was a, a reform rabbi in the States. Rabbi Friedman, here's his quote, and we'll have to break this down because it's like, it's a big <laughs> thing, okay? So here's what Rabbi Friedman has to say about families. The effect of the displacement issue is to distract family members from more painful matters that would focus them on themselves or their own relationships. And the effect on the object of the displacement is that it then becomes extremely difficult to be objective about the nature and extent of its real problems since so much added anxiety has been grafted onto it. So, whew, we gotta break that down. 
Okay. Any questions? Where do you want to go with this, Ellie? You want to keep going? I think it's great. And it, it really speaks to a lot of what you've spoken about in the past, where like if a kid is anxious, is this really about the kid? So exactly. I, I think it's a really great, um, I mean, he just lays it out in that more kind of algorithmic um, terms. So the, the trick here is that a, what a lot of parents will say to me, more like workshops that you and I have done, is that, no, but my child really was diagnosed with, um, I don't, pick your poison, pick anything, pediatric cancer at the age of five, ADHD at the age of eight. Um, we really did lose the family business at two. It was a real problem. What Dr. Bowen said, it's the real or imagined problems that people, how they focus or not focus on that becomes the problem, not the thing itself. Right. Okay. So, th- so you know, because you can say, uh, we'll, we'll get into it later, but the important thing here is that all families have problems. No one's going to disagree with that, I don't think. Some of them are imaginary and some mm-hmm. of them are real. It seems to be that the more mature families, okay, and the more reactive families, it's how they respond to and what kind of resources they have to deal with the real or imaginary problems, i.e. anxiety that we have within ourselves, right. that separates how we get gridlocked with these things. And I would say the Stone family is, a, is quite an immature, anxious family, although they wouldn't see themselves right. that way. Okay, so what, so let, let's come back. So. Ed Friedman says that displacement is distracting family members from the more painful matters. Okay, well, question, Ellie. I mean, we already talked about it. What is the more painful matter? Is it really Meredith? It's like, is that what this family is going through? That Because the way the film begins, it's Meredith. This whole family, essentially, the narrative they've all wrapped into, as you said, mom and Amy and everybody, the whole family is revolving like vultures around Meredith as the source of pain and problem in his family. Mm -hmm. But Ellie, is that really, I mean, you've you've seen the film. What is the real painful, unspoken about thing that's going on in this family? In the present, it's the fact that Sybil is dying of cancer. So there are two things going on in this family. Okay, there are two things. And one is more important than the other. The first thing is the fact of the matter that mom is dying of cancer. That's bad enough, okay? But there's a more important thing that's happening. It's that mom isn't sharing this with anybody because I think she wants to, in her words, she wants Christmas to be a certain way. She doesn't want it to be melancholy. Right, she says she wants to wait till after Christmas. That's right. So to tell them. What do we know about family secrets? We know that family secrets are inherited that meaning that other people in our family have had secrets. And we learn that when I'm uncomfortable with something, I don't share it. And it's a way of restoring a sense of everything is fine. You know, people don't just come up with the idea of I'm going to hold this secret. You know, an example would be when um, a father tells his son, I'm going to tell you something, but you don't, don't you tell mom. Don't tell mom it's going to make her too upset. He learned that somewhere. He didn't come up with that on his own. He probably heard his parents do that. And at least in family research uh, literature, family secrets have a profound impact on a family's ability to be nimble and creative and function. What happens with family secrets is that the problem that isn't being addressed gets buried underground. And then all these weird tentacles of other things kind of take its place. And it almost serves like a seedling with these weird 
branches and leaves. And so you're always putting out these brush fires, but you're never dealing with the secret. I have had families in my office, Ellie, where there's generations of, um, you know, symptoms and weird things. And, and someone, and someone says, either they blurt it out or they say it has to be said and the family secret gets revealed. And often it's not as horrendous as right. people think, but that secret has bound the family almost like a freeze frame. It's mm -hmm. like they're frozen in time from like 200 years ago. It's, mm -hmm. it's fascinating. And they're frozen in time and they keep putting out these brush fires, but it's not working. I, I would say what's happening here is this family is frozen in time with a mother who has a chronic illness. It's chronic because she had cancer and it, it has come back. Um, and they use family secrets as a way to keep everything cheery, mm. right? At the beginning of the day, everyone's cheery. The only time you know the, gig, the jig is up is when mom is by herself and she has that melancholic uh, stare, you know? She's looking out the window or she's looking mm -hmm. at the tree. Other than that, she puts on a smiley face. Do you know people like this? I mean, I know people like this. Yeah, I also know that most of the time when if you're all in the house together you know when somebody's keeping a secret everybody how do you can, know everybody can feel that something's not normal like there's just sort of i think people are much more sensitive than we admit to and i certainly remember as a kid growing up like you knew things weren't like like there's something going on but no one's talking about it now as a little kid you usually experience that as oh there must be something wrong with me because i'm not feeling okay mm -hmm. but as you get older you start to look around and realize wait a second this actually isn't me there's something going on here that no one's talking about and the the discomfort of that and i think if you never get to that point of realizing that the discomfort in this room isn't me this is just something something's going on that no one's talking about it can be crazy making so I, I think most of the time people, if they pay attention, can tell that there's an elephant in the room that no one's addressing. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. Um, I have nothing more to add. It's just, it's true and it, <laughs> and it creates a problem unto itself. And, um, and uh, I mean, we, there's a whole other side thing we can go with what you just said, because the problem when, when a family, when there's a crazy making thing going on that is too chronic, people become symptomatic. I mean, right. that's what leads people to a therapist's office. It's, it's the panic attack, the anxiety, the depression. Th that is a result of a chronic maladaptive way of not dealing with the facts of the matter at hand. Right. But we're not gonna talk about that today. Okay, we need now to talk about the most important quote about uh, Ed Friedman's thing, because to under if you don't understand this, you just don't understand this family and you don't understand any family. This is the money quote and it's beautiful and we have to understand it. So what does Ed Friedman say? The effect of displacing things that we are not comfortable with, okay, onto something else makes it extremely difficult to deal with the real problem. So much so because anxiety has been grafted onto not the real problem. So this is a situation, Ellie. So it's so beautiful what you said because we have to understand this, okay? If you have a family that has managed for generations and generations with some sort of defense mechanism to not deal with their issues, okay? 
And they're so allergic to dealing with whatever the problem is that they displace it onto someone else. Mm -hmm. And you come into the room, Ellie, you're a therapist, and you come into the room, you see the problem. It's obvious. It's staring at you right in the face. Right. Okay. <laughs> you know, this happens to therapists when they're ready to graduate school. And they look at them and go, guys, the problem is this. That family is going to look at you, right? Call your supervisor mm -hmm. and say, where did he get his degree? In a Cracker Jack box? Because they don't they are not seeing hearing understanding what we're saying it's our child that is the problem and what ed friedman said and, and ed friedman was a family therapist is that what's so hard about this work is you have to sit there with a family even though you see the problem and you have to shut your mouth and be patient and patient and patient and sometimes you even have to say goodbye to a family and never address the problem and say, it was a pleasure working with you. Please come back if you ever want to work on that thing again. <laughs> it is very hard. Right. It is very, very hard to do. And the, what, 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 um, and so what Ed Friedman is suggesting here is that in our own lives, the more we double down on not looking at our problems, in this case, a mother who is dying Think of what's happening here. By not sharing this with her children and her family, she is not allowing herself, A, to grieve mm -hmm. openly and not allowing her family to do that. Now, That's we right. don't see where this family, where, where this carries out. But I, I, Ellie, I can tell you, I've mentioned this on this podcast before, um, uh, the difference in some families with certain deaths and the difference in other families with certain deaths and how come grief in some families go on for years and years is because it wasn't process in the moment that it was happening right. good people doing loving decisions out of anxiety saying we're not going to we will not talk about this right. we want to protect the kids we want to and then all that happens is after the death it, it kind of takes on this weird life of its own and you're trying to deal grieving with the person who's dead right i know people who will go to the tombstone and grieve with I guess the soul or the stone or whatever for years because mm -hmm. it wasn't done when the person was alive. And so Ed right. Friedman's point is that this stuff gets gridlocked in a family and then the family orients around the displacement and it goes on and on and on. And I think that's one way to understand what's happening here. Um, it is too frightening for Sybil to deal with this cancer. By the way, I completely understand, by the way. I have empathy right. for her, her position. Okay. Meredith has no clue about this foobar, what's right. going on with this family. No clue. Right. Okay. So she's getting all reactive, rightly so, because everyone's right. focusing on her as the problem. And then even when Everett finds out, he doesn't even tell Meredith. Slow that down. Even when Everett finds out. There's a point where she where his mother tells him and he's crying and sobbing with her. Right. And then he doesn't even fill Meredith in. So she still has no clue what's going on. Now each of the, the kids are finding out. And so even when she gives that beautiful gift of the blown up black and white photo of Sybil when she's younger and pregnant, and they all are crying, she still has no idea what's going on. And no one still tells her. That's a very so good point. It's, it's really very difficult. They're clearly just so like habituated in not revealing what's going on, that everyone is sort of walking around wondering what they don't know. Well, you know, Ellie, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? Because, you know, this is sort of, uh, it's not a 
great analogy, but one of the things that is so hard, I think, for people who are so proud of Israel, um, that, that infuriates people who are not just, it's, not, it's more than proud of Israel, that there is something about Israel that represents for a, uh, a I would say, a large portion of the Jewish community about a, a very painful, traumatic memory mm -hmm. of the Holocaust right. and about the insecurity that we heard from our grandparents and our great-grandparents about we didn't have a place and an army to protect us when the world went nuts. Okay. And in 2021, because we forget and you don't remember. So when you have all of this, um, when people who aren't, you know, either aren't part of the community or they don't get it, when they see this attachment to Israel and they, and, 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 you know, why do you need the army and the army who needs, and there's all this sort of reactivity to the attachment without understanding the source of the fear and the anxiety, you just don't get it. You, you, it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense, actually, and and, and so it, that's why. Yeah. Not only that, just to say, like, and then you put three thousand years of yearning for that land on top of it. That one of the basic values and principles of the Jewish family is to be in that land, and then you mix it with the you know the unhealed experience of not being in the land and being slaughtered by the millions. You got like people just don't understand that if you don't understand the even further back context. Yeah, I mean, essentially, you know, in a sense, I mean, it's, okay, it's, again, it's not a, it's a poor metaphor actually, but in a sense, you know, then you're, you're everyone's Meredith, where you're standing with this like confounded look on your face, like, why is everyone crying? Right. Like, what, what, what's this about? Right. Um, and I think that's true, and that's why this is where the psychoanalysts are onto something. So everyone who takes shots at Freud which I think is uh, usually people who don't understand anything about Freudian psychology, but the people who take shots at Freud, they don't understand that the, the past does set you free. Only if you understand the past, right. otherwise you are gonna be perpetually recycling things in a way that you have no clue what the hell's going on. So uh, I, I think that this line by Ed Friedman is just um, is, uh, is so important. I'm so happy you said what you said about grieving because I was talking to a, a client about that this week about grieving is the process of moving forward. Like as long as you avoid mourning and grieving, you're not moving forward. You, it's, you just can't do it. You have to go through it in order to like get to the next piece. And I think um, on so many levels, whether it's the end of a relationship, whether it's the loss of an actual, you know, whether somebody actually dies, if you don't go through some type of grieving process, you can't get through to the other side. Like Judaism is so set up to acknowledge that you have seven days of heavy grieving and then another 30 days of less heavy and then another 11 months, but it's, you're instructed to go through the process, whether you like it or not because there's a recognition you can't go forward otherwise. I might've shared this story before, um, but uh, I was in, um, when my grandfather was in palliative care uh, in Montreal, I was very close with my grandfather and uh, he was dying. Um, and I was so unaware of my own grief and anxiety that I was like numb. Mm. And this was sort of, I was very prone to this in my twenties. I was just sort of numb to certain things but that was because i was so sensitive i get overwhelmed with these feelings and the way i yeah. coped with it is kind of like just like, right? Right. like just, yeah. so i'm sitting in uh, i was working at a synagogue with a wonderful rabbi um and we're studying and he just i think i mentioned to him my grandfather was ill and he said how's your how's your zadie which is yiddish for grandfather and i said to him uh, oh he's uh, he's not doing good he's, he's in palliative care 
at the Jewish General Hospital. And he looked at me and he goes, why are you sitting with me? And I said to him, well, what do you want? I don't know. He's, what do you want me to do there? He's like, what you do is you go there and you sit with him and you deal with this. But by being with me, he goes, you're not absorbing any of these lessons that we're doing. So that afternoon, I, so I said, whatever. I said to him, uh, okay. I thought he was nuts. I really did. I thought the rabbi was like being too <laughs> rabbinical. So uh, got in my car, went down to the Jewish general, my uncle. Uh, my uncle was there. Um, uh, my mother and her sisters were down in the uh, cafeteria. And uh, my, my Zadie died, actually, with me being in the room that afternoon that the rabbi told me to go back. He died as my uncle Shelly and me were in the room with the nurse saying that, um, uh, you know, when you're in palliative care, nurses understand when the body is shutting down, your grandfather's dying right now. So I got to hold his hand and grieve. And if it wasn't for that rabbi and the wisdom wow. that he had, it was that afternoon, I would have missed I would have missed it. Now, I don't, I wouldn't say that was all the grieving took place in that right. one moment, but, but th this is something we've talked about Elliot, but why it's so bloody important to have wise elders mm -hmm. in the community. Cause if you don't have wise elders, you are always being driven by your anxiety. Okay. Wise elders are the calm, cool, principle centered people who suggest a different way of managing these things. Okay. I want to just throw one other thing out here, Ellie, that's important. Yeah. You know, we, we live in this, we live in this weird world, right? Where everybody has to apologize, right? <laughs> On Twitter, right? You do something wrong. You yes. got to apologize. Everybody's Pro apologizing, profusely. right? Yes. Profusely. You have to apologize. Multiple right. Times I was so, I was. And multiple channels. Yeah. yeah. And you, you have to beat <laughs> yourself with like, uh, you know, with feathers and okay. Um, we all know it's BS. Um, and it's unfortunate because it's taken a genuine apology and it's thrown out the window. It's, right. it's an apology for a branding exercise, essentially. And here's an example where um, one would think that whatever it does with Meredith would be the cure to this family. And it is not. Remember in the film when the family just treats Meredith horribly and Everett finally breaks out of his kind of like cruel and he yells at his mother and his father. Remember, he, he stands up yeah. for Meredith. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Good for him, you know. But clients in my office often think that that, that is going to deal with the problem, right. okay? That type of stuff, whether it's an apology or telling someone in your family where to go, and it's nice to have backbone and it's mm -hmm. nice to be able to do that. I think it's important. It does not deal with the problem. That yeah, it was good fix. for Everett, but it didn't fix anything in the system. It had like it nothing to do with mom's cancer and, right. and, and, and the unresolved thing. And I wanted to point that out here because I think in the film, it's portrayed as a way of um, you tell your family where, you, you know, the point of this kind of stuff mm -hmm. is you tell people where to go, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, and, you know, in the work that I do, or I would say when I first got into this work, I misunderstood the point of family of origin work. I, when I first got into this work, I thought part of it was you find the courage to go in and tell your mother and your father, you ruined my life. And here's the reasons why. And you finally found the backbone. You're not taking it anymore. <laughs> right. And of course, it always makes things worse. Um, so I, just, I wanted to point that out because uh, I think that... Um, you know, my, my concluding remarks on this, and I know I've harped on this, but I thought it was something that we've never touched on in this film, this idea of uh, displacement and grief. Um, uh, I have one remark, one quote, and then I'll, I'll open this up, Ellie, if you have anything else to add. Uh, but it. this is all I have for this film. I mean, I have a lot more for this film, but this is the main, the main point. Um, whenever you're dealing with displacement in a family, you don't know it's displacement. So this is what's tricky because if you're in a family and it is a defense, you don't know. Right. But for the clinicians who might be listening to this, 
Um, the trick of working with displacement in families, when you see it, when you have a sense there's something else going on here, is to continue to double down on patience and curiosity and ask questions and get family history and ask questions and be patient. And that what I have found is more often than not, the secret reveals itself in time when anxiety is brought down to a level where the family is prepared to deal with the thing that shan't be discussed. So that's my thing. One last quote, and then uh, well, I, this is a quote from um, the wonderful Monica McGoldrick, Dr. McGoldrick, who um, is the genogram lady, a well-known family therapist. Here's her quote. Many of the dysfunctional patterns we routinely observe in families, affairs, driven activities, alienation, isolation, fear of outsiders, continuous relationship conflicts, depression, workaholism, escape into TV or the internet, often reflect the inability to deal with loss, which has finally become the inability to connect with anyone out of fear of further loss. Mm. So I will leave that there. One of the consequences of not dealing with grief and how by not dealing with grief, we throw ourselves into activity and we throw ourselves into ways of not connecting with people so that we never have to once again feel the fear of one part of the human condition which is the people that we love, we have to say goodbye to. That is the deal we've all signed up for in our families. Okay. Awesome. I, you know, I want to sort of throw this out also just as something to think about, because if you're not in a situation where there's a death in the family, but you are, you can be experiencing loss when a relationship changes, you can be experiencing loss when you have an argument with somebody or a falling out, you can experience loss when a child is no longer a child and suddenly they're a teenager. And I think the power of being able to grieve the transition, grieve that things have changed um, is also a part of what you're saying, because I think some people would look around and be like, well, I'm displaying those behaviors, but nobody's died. But you have experienced loss because you've experienced disconnectedness, you've experienced hurts which are small losses, you've experienced changes in relationships. So I think giving people permission to grieve, even when it's not some like, you know, obviously grievable experience um, will allow people to find that way of, of looking at the symptoms of, oh, there's something going on that I haven't processed in some way yet. So I keep doing something to avoid feeling whatever those feelings are. So I just wanted to throw that in because I think sometimes we think it has to be some big event that um, we have to trace back to. And literally, sometimes it can just be whatever's happening right in front of you that you haven't given yourself a chance to feel. Absolutely. Agreed. Cool. <laughs> Okay. Awesome. So by the way, um, it's my turn to pick next. Uh, it is interesting that you picked this film because Claire Danes in this film is in mm -hmm. the next film and her character, if you think she was good in this film, wait till you see the next film. Oh okay. boy. Claire Danes is just wonderful. <laughs> Honestly, wonderful. Uh, the okay. film that I am picking is Igby Goes Down. It is a, um, I'm not even trying to describe it. It's, um, it is a power house house okay. horse powerhouse yeah yeah um it's one of my favorite films it's dark but uh it's wonderful and i can't wait to discuss it with you okay amazing okay Thank Ellie. You so much abram i'll Take see care. you next week bye everybody bye-bye